Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today I speak with David Crow, one of the world's foremost experts in the field of botanical medicine and grassroots healthcare. David is a master herbalist. He is an aromatherapist, an acupuncturist, an activist, an author, and a poet. He is the co-founder of The Learning Garden at Venice High School in Los Angeles, one of the country's largest and most successful school gardens. We spoke in a far-ranging conversation about essential oils, aromatherapy, flower essences, psychedelics, just to name a few. David is idiosyncratic, iconoclastic, and quite funny. So with no further ado, here's David Crow. I thought I would start off by... Um, by reading a selection that I found on your on your website, to transform the growing realms of human misery to realms of happiness and fulfillment of human potential, we must wisely cooperate to plant gardens perfumed with beautiful fragrances and living pharmacies of aromatic medicines. That's on my website? Yeah, did you write that? I wrote that. Tell me a bit about this quote and what it what are the broader implications? This is obviously rather utopian, but something that came out of my studies of classical Asian medicine, and very specifically from my studies of Tibetan medicine. Power of healing comes from the plants. And that's really the origin of all my writings. It all revolves around that idea that nature is our pharmacy. Now, over the years, because of the various directions that have unfolded in my work clinically or involved in community gardens, social activism, my travels and my studies of classical Asian medicine, one of the main families of herbs that I have focused on have been the aromatic herbs. And that's because I have a little company that supports agroforestry organic ecological agriculture through the production of essential oils. Therefore, there has always been a very strong dimension of the fragrance of the plants, as well as my background in clinical herbology, in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. So for me, herbology has always been very comprehensive, not just the herbs, but also their aromatics and also the cultures they come from and the energetics and elements that they represent and the cosmology that is inside them. So in that particular short phrase that you just wrote, what I was pointing to is that plants heal society and plants heal the environment. We think of plants as foods Herbalists think of plants as medicines, and now many people are starting to realize that there are many benefits of herbal medicine that allopathic drugs can't do, and that's correct. But plants actually have many, many dimensions of healing. And we could sum these all up, and, and the four global benefits are, number one, medical. And, of course, that's where most people know medicinal plants is through the clinical application or from products from the health food store. But within that, we can also uh, ask the question, well, 
why? What makes medicinal plants different than allopathic drugs? And the very simple answer is that allopathic prescription drugs do not give us any nutrition and they don't detoxify us. And if you cannot get high quality nutrients and you cannot detoxify, you cannot basically get well. So that's the limitation of the allopathic drugs. They have the role, but they can't do those two things. Those are the things we need the plants for. And of course, the more depleted the food chain gets and the more toxic the world becomes, the more we need those things. So that's the medical benefit, which is global, universal for all of humanity. But if you look at the next level of what happens when you start to cultivate and produce and harvest plants is economic benefit. And what we can see is that the medicinal plants are very high value crops that are supporting individuals and communities all over the world. And in the world of aromatics, it becomes even more dramatic in terms of the economic benefit. For example, rose oil from Bulgaria. That's a well-established in industry that's been there for centuries, and one liter of rose oil is now costing around $15,000. So these are very high-value crops. So there's economic benefit, which means that the medicinal plants have the power to not only heal the physical body and illness, but they also have the power to heal poverty, and poverty is the number one cause of illness in a certain kind of way. The third benefit is environmental. Because when you cultivate plants sustainably and ecologically, then it protects the environment. So the Valley of Roses in Bulgaria has been preserved ecologically for hundreds of years because of the roses. Then finally, the last global benefit is that it preserves the traditional spiritual culture because all these things are all connected together. I had graduated from acupuncture college and it was not really oriented holistically like this. You know, they call it traditional Chinese medicine, TCM, but it's also sometimes referred to as traditional communist medicine. You know, there's not really any spiritual dimensions left to it. Some is coming back now, but, but then there was one specific turning point in clinical practice in Los Angeles, and I was talking to a woman who needed certain kinds of herbs, but like a lot of patients, she didn't have the economic resources for it. And that's because natural medicine is all out of pocket, unfortunately. It should be covered by our tax dollars, but it's not. And I was talking with her, and also I was looking out the window, and the view from my window was from the second story looking out across the neighborhood in Venice Beach. And I had already been involved in some projects with herbal medicine. And in the Himalayas, studying with the Tibetan and Ayurvedic doctors, I had done a lot of hands-on work with the plants. And so knew that there was a whole dimension of growing, harvesting, and preparing. And I was talking with this woman and she was telling me how she couldn't afford herbs, couldn't afford treatments, couldn't afford herbs. And I'm looking at all these empty backyards and I suggested, well, why don't you grow the medicine you need? And she loved that idea and she started doing it. And we started telling other people in the neighborhood and we organized a collective neighborhood 
herb cultivation project that went from one person to 12 people to 60 people in a relatively short period of time. And soon there were all these herb gardens and all these backyards. People were learning how to grow and take care of their own medicine. And then one of the participants in that group came and said, I'm a parent. I have a student at Venice High School. And Venice High School has an empty lot of 60,000 square feet that's just full of trash right now. And I have talked to the principal, and we have permission to move the whole thing there. And so we created what is still going 13 years later as one of the country's most successful school gardens, which is called the Learning Garden at Venice High School. And that had has many gardens inside it. And so we also planted a garden specifically of Chinese medicinals and Ayurvedic medicinals and North American medicinals. And then the high school students had their own plots where they got to get out of the classroom, get outside in some fresh air, grow their own food and flowers, and undergo that whole humanizing process of being able to see where their food comes from. These students at Venice High, when we first started doing this, it was a classical situation where the students would, would say, they, didn't, they don't know where the food comes from at all. They just think it comes from the shelf of the store. And they'd never grown anything. They were amazed that a tomato comes from a seed. I mean, it's that profound of level of ignorance. So the high school students got the benefits. And then what we did was we made a link between the gardens and the acupuncture colleges. And so we were able to bring in the students from three acupuncture colleges in Los Angeles to come and do internships and learn how to raise the herbs that they are studying in their program. Because you can do a four-year master's degree program in Chinese medicine and never meet a plant, which is absurd. Those are some of the turning points that made it more socially engaged, I guess you could say. And then there's been many other kinds of things since then, but the whole movement has been towards not just practicing Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, but actually growing the medicine. And if we don't have the plants locally, then we don't really have a complete healthcare system. If we have the classical knowledge and we know what to do with the plants, and we also know how to grow them, then we can make radical improvements in public health. Essential oils are generally steam-distilled aromatic compounds from aromatic plants. And so you see that essential oils are extracted from flowers. Essential oils are distilled from spices. Essential oils are distilled from woods and resins like sandalwood and frankincense and things like that. Not all plants have aromatic compounds, only about 10%. The essential oils are the most concentrated form of an herbal extract. Essential oils are now becoming very well known through the efforts of multi-level marketing companies. And this is very problematic. And I generally say that essential oils and aromatherapy combines with anything except multi-level marketing. (laughs) And the reason for this is because the motivation in multi-level marketing is to sell a product. Now, if you consider that essential oils are the most concentrated form of herbal medicine and you put it in the business model of multi-level marketing, you have 
tens of thousands of people with no education about botany, about herbal medicine, about medicine at all, trying to get their friends and families to consume these things. And that's the primary objective, is not using them safely, which is in very, very dilute, minute amounts. It's using them excessively as much as possible. So people are being told, drink the essential oils, take it internally, it's so good for this and so good for that, put it on the skin, and there is an epidemic of adverse reactions. People are being hospitalized, children are being burned, people are killing their pets permanent esophageal damage, seizures. So the FDA is coming down on this a lot. There's a big complicated dimension to essential oils and aromatherapy, but in the proper context, they have great benefit. You just have to learn how to use them right. There's only really one thing you have to learn how to do, and that's dilute them. And if you dilute them properly, they have a lot of great benefits. But they also have really fundamental weaknesses. They're Real strength is that they are strongly antimicrobial. Their other real strength is that they work through the limbic system, and many of them are very deeply relaxing. There are certain strengths of certain groups of oils, like for example, eucalyptus and conifer oils, are really the number one treatment for respiratory conditions, even before herbs. A diffuser is the number one way of making essential oils biocompatibly safe for the home use. Now, the respiratory oils, such as eucalyptus oils and conifer oils, are relatively safe oils as long as you don't drink them. They won't burn your skin badly. So you can put a couple drops on the palms. You can breathe them directly from the palms. It'll clear your sinuses, decongestant. You can put a couple drops in a pot of hot water, cover your head with a towel and breathe it antitussive expectorant for respiratory conditions, antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory. But the real benefit of using those oils in a diffuser is that the diffuser creates a cloud of micro droplets that goes into the atmosphere, which purifies the atmosphere. And with chronic exposure to that low-grade background fragrance, what happens is that there's a gradual improvement of the general terrain of the respiratory mucous membrane that results in improved respiratory immunity. And one of the main testimonials that I have heard over and over again from just that simple application of those simple oils, nothing complicated, just eucalyptus oil in a diffuser or pine oil or spruce or fir oil in a diffuser, just those simple oils in a diffuser through a winter season and the most common testimonial is, I used to get a lot of colds and flus. This is the main way to bring essential oils safely into public health and the home pharmacy. I, I was kind of poking around in, in, on your website, and it seemed like there was a lot of ailments. Then It wasn't diabetes, it wasn't cancer, but it was things like depression, for example, that could be treated with essential oils. Well, that's the link to the limbic system that I mentioned. So essential oils are very good for the respiratory system, and essential oils are very good for relaxation. And aromatherapy is now one of the well-established methods of helping to produce enhanced relaxation. And there's a lot of science and studies coming out about this. But what's interesting is that the major way of using essential oils for relaxation is in an aromatherapy massage. And so a lot of these studies have looked at the beneficial effects and the kind of statistics of the success rates of aromatherapy massage. And what they find is that it's highly beneficial for even serious things. 
aromatherapy massage, highly beneficial for extreme anxiety of pre-surgery patients, uh, highly uh, beneficial for relaxation, for anxiety of expecting mothers, highly beneficial for anxiety in the elderly. And that's wonderful. But a lot of these studies also end with the same kind of statement, which is, we don't know if the mechanism is the aromas or the massage. And that's where aromatherapy is really different than herbal medicine, is that because the essential oils are coming in through the sense of smell, through the limbic system, it's much more subjective in terms of what people like and don't like, and in terms of what essential oils do what, than herbal medicine. And herbal medicine goes way, way back. And essential oils do not. And this is another fraudulent claim by the MLM companies is that they have rediscovered essential oils that were used in biblical time, which of course is great for people who are in the, uh, you know, biblical life and biblical mindset. Uh, That's their religious orientation. And so that's where the majority of the MLM business is. Okay. That's not true historically. Aromatic plants were used in biblical time in aromatic preparations, but essential oils were not distilled until about 1000 AD, and then it was only done by a few individuals. Large-scale distillation really didn't start until about 500 years ago in a specific region of India supported by the kings for their own perfumery purposes. And what we now know is the essential oil industry has really only grown and developed over the last 50 years at the most. And now the selection of essential oils that we have, widely available, is really new. And so it's very important to understand the historical reality that these were not around thousands of years ago, and that the majority of these essential oils we actually know very little about. Would you recommend any um, online resources for people who are curious about using essential oils? Well, we have our website where there's a lot of articles. It's floracopia.com, and it should be spelled F-L-O-R-A-C-O-P-E-I-A, floracopia.com. And we have articles, and we do educational events, such as doing here at Esalen, and we do a lot of online education as well. We have courses. People can become educated in aromatherapy and herbal medicine. I teach herbal medicine as well as the essential oil use. But I also recommend two other areas that people study if they really want to understand essential oils. Do, the res- do some research into the medical databases like PubMed.com. Okay, PubMed is a medical database that has research studies on all kinds of things. That's where you can see the modern information coming out about what do essential oils do and not do and what are their problems and how do they work. It's very dense information, but you can learn a lot. And then the other place where you can learn really helpful information about essential oils and aromatic plants is to study their traditional uses. So, for example, lavender oil. Lavender oil has been around, distilled now for maybe 100 years or so. But lavender as an herb has been used in European herbology for centuries and centuries. 
And if you look at the uses of lavender as an herb, what you're going to see is that it's a nervine relaxant. It's uplifting to the mood. And if you understand the traditional ways that the plants were used, then you can understand and make a link that's realistic to the applications of the essential oils from that plant because the essential oils are the active constituents of that plant. That's one of the ways that I'm trying to tie these sources together. We're looking at traditional ethnobotanical uses of the aromatic plants, and we're looking at the modern science. And then we're translating this into modern aromatherapy applications. So those are the main ways that I recommend that people research it. So I was in clinical practice for many years. My book, In Search of the Medicine Buddha, came out. I started touring around, and I have a diversity of interests. I was teaching Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. I'm also very deeply committed to meditation practice and integrating the teachings from classical Asian medicine into Vipassana practice. And these are the things that I'm really passionate about. I was on the road for many, many years, almost full time, and I was sharing these things with various audiences. And so I would do a meditation, I would offer a meditation retreat, and a few people would come. I would offer an aromatherapy retreat, and a lot of people would come. There's far more interest in aromatherapy, unfortunately, than there is in meditation practice. So partly out of that natural flow, where people were interested in what, my life sort of evolved. And what I found was that if I combined these subjects, that I could attract a big audience. And so we started doing events that were contemplative aromatherapy and people would come for the aromatherapy side, but then I would actually teach it in the context of Vipassana meditation. And so people would end up spending five days meditating, even though they hadn't come for that. And then they would be refreshed with all of these fragrances. So the essential oils, in a certain way, took over because there's so much intrigue about them, far more than herbal medicine, really. And it's an interesting question as to why is that. And I know that from the business standpoint, it's because MLM companies frame it as you're going to become wealthy, which of course is fraudulent. 99% of MLM people end up making no money. I think there's something also that's that's somewhat mystical and um, non-rational about sense. You are correct. It goes to a different part of our brain. And I think that that's... Also, the biological link that I was just going to mention is that there is something there. And it's easier, actually, to study certain aspects of the cosmologies of the plants, their energies in prana, for example, than ingesting herbs. Because if you have a fragrance on a perfume strip, you can easily do a meditation on it, just sitting and breathing, and you can learn very easily. And this is what we were doing in these contemplative aromatherapy practices, you can perceive all the teachings of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine in that fragrance on the perfume strip. So you can perceive 
in the fragrance of lavender, you can perceive sunlight, and you can perceive moonlight, okay, Agni and Soma, yin and yang. You can perceive the five elements of earth, water, fire, air, space, because all of those things are metabolized by the plant and end up in the compounds in the essential oil. Now, you can do that with herbal medicine also, but it takes 48 hours because it has to go through the digestive system, and it's not so enjoyable in many ways. But that's the link. The olfactory system gives us immediate contact with the outside world, whereas through the digestive tract, it's slow. And all of those energies and elements are in the oils, and they become a window, as it were, into the deeper cosmologies of classical Asian medicine. So that's my unique contribution, is synthesizing the classical teachings of Asian medicine with Vipassana contemplative body-based sensory organoleptic awareness into something that we can smell immediately. But then by extension of that, I also teach people to become more mindful of the tea that they're drinking because the energies and elements of the plants and the environment are all in the taste of the teas and the herbs and by extension it's all in the food that we eat also and then by extension it's actually in all of our senses so the nostrils are the starting point but the cosmology is the goal let's say somebody was interested in exploring the world of aromatherapy are there is there like a starter a, a group of scents that would be uh, a starter kit we have several starter kits so you can have a group of oils for relaxation, uh, stress reduction. A lot of those tend to be the flowers. Lavender, clary sage, neroli, orange blossom, geranium, things like that. Or you could have a group of oils that's specifically for enhancing immunity and treating the respiratory system like the eucalypti and the conifers. Or around the Christmas season, you might want to think about the sacred scents where you can have a collection of frankincense and palo santo and agar wood and things that are used for ceremony and ritual. And then you can have a group of oils that are just wood oils. And you can have a group of oils that are just root oils. Or you could have a group of oils that have a reputation for enhancing cognition. Rosemary is now getting a lot of validation that its traditional use of supporting memory is actually correct. Now, inhalation of rosemary oil is scientifically proven to actually enhance your memory. Or lemon balm helps with the agitation of Alzheimer's dementia. These kind of things are now being validated, but that was all known in traditional herbal medicine. So you can classify the oils that way, and any starter kit is basically just two or three oils that have a similar kind of function. Or you can put together a kit where you have one of each. So it's pretty diverse. And if people go to the Floricopia site, we have kits. We have lots of kits that have evolved over the years for all kinds of purposes. We have large, extensive kits for the aromatherapy students. And we have the simple starter kits for people who don't know anything. How about flower essences? I noticed there was a a large portion of your site devoted to that, and I wasn't sure about the difference between essential oils and flower essences. Flower essences are the contribution of my wife, Sarah. That is her specialty. She's also an acupuncturist and herbalist, and her specialty 
has been making flower essences, and that is what she brought to the company along with her skincare line. Now, flower essences are at the complete opposite spectrum of concentration. Essential oils are the most concentrated, potent extract from the aromatic plants. Flower essences are subtle, energetic, homeopathic remedies. The essential oils are extracted from the aromatic plants primarily through steam distillation. Flower essences are made energetically by placing flowers on the surface of water in a bowl under sunlight. The most famous would be the Bach remedies. Those are flower essences. But now flower essences are emerging also as a very viable treatment. They are especially helpful for sensitive people because they are a subtle remedy. They are especially helpful for children because they're subtle, and they are very helpful for animals because they're subtle. So for us dense adults, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but they work very much on what Ayurveda would call the prana body. That is the body of energy that's woven into the body of food and water. This is an Ayurvedic concept that we have a body made of food and we have a body made of energy and a body made of emotions and a body made of mind and a body made of spirit. The flower essences work primarily on the body made of emotions and mind and energy. They're very subtle. Now the flower essences are being found to have some significant benefits and one of the main things that we have seen Sarah makes blends and they have names that are reflective of their indications we have a product for example called trauma repair which is a blend of flower essences specifically for healing trauma and we hear all kinds of testimonials about it we recently received a testimonial from a medical doctor a surgeon who said i've been giving trauma repair to my patients and i have noticed that they're having far less post-operative problems from anesthesia so these kind of reports are coming and of course they're there and homeopathy is well established and has been there for a long time. And even though it's very subtle and it's very difficult to pin down its mechanism because it's working on the subtle level, there's a great demand for it. And people feel that it does something. So that's her contribution. And she has some unique products now, actually, where she's putting together the tincture, the alcohol extract of herbs, such as rose flowers, with a very minute concentration of rose oil, because if you have an essential oil in a low enough dilution, like 0.001%, it can be taken internally. And you find that in cough syrups, and you find that in some over-the-counter products and things like that. So she will take a minute amount of rose essential oil, put it into the rose tincture, and then put the rose flower essence. And what you have then is you have a full spectrum of 
concentration levels from the most concentrated essential oil through the alcohol extract of all the ingredients of the flour all the way to the subtlest level of its energetic extract. So that's another product line that she's created, flower essence tinctures. There's an interesting section on your website about Palo Santo, returning to what you spoke about before in terms of the global um, ramifications of the harvesting of some of these uh, herbs, and uh, this would be trees, right? And I wonder if you could speak a bit about the, the project in Ecuador with Palo Santo. Yes, this is a big subject. We met Palo Santo about 10 years ago. The first time I went to Ecuador, about 10 years ago, I was guided through a series of otherworldly synchronistic events. And I later discovered that one of the powers of Palo Santo is that it creates synchronistic events. It is an aromatic tree that grows in the tropical dry forest, which is a unique ecosystem, specifically on the western coast of Ecuador, Peru, a little bit in Central America. But its homeland, its heartland, is in the region of the Machalilla National Park, which is right on the equator, on the coast of Ecuador. Now, I was in Ecuador for teaching and on my way to a teaching tour in Brazil. And through a series of synchronistic events, I ended up meeting the only person distilling this wood. It has a long history of use as wood, specifically as incense. And it is used shamanically in ceremony, in smoke form, fumigation, and it's totally well known in every home as an incense that you light in the afternoon to repel the mosquitoes. But when I met our distiller there, I learned that he was becoming one of the world's foremost experts in the traditional ethnobotanical knowledge, which is being lost. So he's a retired Italian psychotherapist who actually knows more about the Palo Santo than a lot of the natives now who don't care about the traditions anymore. So he's gathered this together and is preserving it and teaching it. And he's also working to do agroforestry preservation. He's planted tens of thousands of Palo Santo trees. And this combination I found very powerful and very interesting because he had the psychotherapeutic background and he has the ethnobotanical background, and he also has the environmental restoration side of things going on. So I felt very good about establishing a working relationship with him, and I brought one of the first liters of oil that he was distilling at that time to the United States and began to release it through Floricopia, and we became the first company to introduce it to the North American market. Since that time, it has become one of our best-selling oils, and we buy a lot of oil from him, and we have also spent a lot of money with him reinvesting in the planting of the trees. So it's really a win-win-win situation. It's win for the people who get the oil. It's win for his community because he employs a lot of people in this little industry. And it's also win for the trees because the end result is more plantations. Yeah. That's the goal with all the plants not just the Palo Santo, but especially the plants that are in great demand that take a long time to regenerate. Now, the 
trees that he's planting will not be distilled by us. They're there for the coming generations, and that's how we have to think about these things. But many herbal species and aromatic species have great potential for this global benefit of economic upliftment, and that's directly linked to the global benefit of environmental protection. Those two things go together very closely. You protect the environment, then you have the foundation for a sustainable economy. If you destroy the environment, there's no economy possible. So what we're looking at then, or the hypothesis or the utopian goal, which is there represented in the Medicine Buddha's mandala, is that reforestation, agroforestry projects, ecological agriculture can become the basis of a sustainable plant-based economy. Now that's utopian. And the apocalyptic reality is that there is a very strong economic incentive to destroy the last of the natural resources. They're becoming more and more valuable. And that motivates people to destroy them more. So what we're trying to do with Palo Santo at that particular level and with other species, sandalwood, agarwood, mostly these trees that take a long time to regenerate, this is where they're really problematic. We are supporting people who are doing the work of replanting. And this is an important thing for people to realize because frequently we get challenged. Well, why are you selling sandalwood? It's endangered. Why are you selling agarwood? It's endangered. Why are you selling Palo Santo? It's endangered. Well, if you don't have a market for the products coming from sustainable projects, sustainable projects have no economic viability. So it's not that the species are endangered, it's where you're buying them from that matters. You see, so we're supporting this gentleman in Ecuador who is replanting these trees, and we're supporting this family in Thailand who, is, who has been replanting agarwood trees for 40 years, and so forth. So that's the environmental ecological side of it. But Palo Santo, as a medicine, is very intriguing. The shamanic use is to take a person, put them in a closed room, and then fumigate the room with a high level of smoke. It's very psychoactive. Apparently, and I have not actually experienced that type of ceremony or that level of smoke, although I should just for research purposes, but apparently it's highly euphoric. And it is used specifically for treating depression and anxiety. But the tree is legendary for certain kinds of powers. And the number one power is that it repels negativity. Well, keeping mosquitoes away is one form. It's antimicrobial and it's good for respiratory infections. That's another form. It also disperses anxiety and depression out of the mind, which is another way of getting rid of negativity. But then the way that our distiller Dante described it even further was the Palo Santo is a tree that helps support people's spiritual growth and it is a tree that opens the channels of creativity. And when I asked him, how does that work? What do you mean? He said, well, it goes back to removing negativity. Specifically what he said is, when you remove negativity, what remains? And what remains is 
our brightness of our spirit, our mental clarity, our positive presence, which is naturally creative. That's the 30-second version of thousands of years of ethnobotanical history about Palo Santo. That's awesome. Um, I wanted to shift the discussion a bit bit to Esalen. What kinds of herbs could you see being grown here? You could grow a huge variety of aromatic plants, and you could grow a huge diversity of medicinal plants here. Obviously, this is a very special ecosystem. You already have all kinds of medicines in the garden, and you already have all kinds of medicines up in the hills. And you also have a number of aromatics that could be distilled up there also. Naturally grown. California natives. Sages are up there. Yarrow is up there. Uh, Bay is up there. All of these things can be distilled for essential oils. Now, the problem with essential oils is that you need a lot of biomass to get a little bit of oil. And so, realistically, for the garden space here, what you would be thinking about is an herbal teaching garden, and perhaps you could divide that into various categories, like we did at the learning garden. You could have a garden that was primarily herbs used in Chinese medicine, a garden primarily of North American medicinal plants, maybe herbs used in Ayurveda. You could divide it that way, or maybe not. And you could also have a garden that was just aromatics. And you could have a couple of specific crops that you could have for distillation purposes, but it wouldn't be any large-scale production. You could dig some roots and you could make some tinctures. You could harvest some leaves, you could make some cough syrups. You could do a variety of things on a small scale, and you could have your little Esalen pharmacy. So there are lots of possibilities. And I mean, obviously, this garden is world-class, well-developed, and very easy to bring in new herbal and aromatic species. But you could also think just about what's already out there just in the property on the other side of the highway, for example. There's all kinds of medicine over there, too. How about we do a little lightning round? I'll shoot you a couple of questions. Oh, no. <laughs> um, what is your secret superpower? What are, what's something that you're really good at that not many people know about? I can't say, really, right off the top of my head. It's very difficult to identify. I, I don't think there's anything particularly secret, first of all, nowadays. Everything that I do, to me, seems fairly mundane, actually. Now, of course, if you're not in the field of natural medicine, it can look really exotic. If you look at my background, oh, this guy went and studied Ayurvedic and Tibetan medicine in Kathmandu, it looks very exotic. But from my perspective, it was just what I wanted to do. And it was just part of my medical education. If there is one thing that I could point to that maybe represents kind of a unique uh, ability personally, is that first, everything I have done, I have done it in a self-actualized, self-motivated, self-created way. When I first started studying 
classical Asian medicine, there were no medical schools, there was no acupuncture, there was no herbal training. And the downside of that was that there wasn't anything available and you had to do it all yourself. But the upside of that was I got classic training in Asia. The second thing that's closely related to that is that since there are no systems like there are in modern allopathic medicine, in modern medicine, you go through medical school and then you move into a practice and it's all set up and you can buy a practice or intern or whatever. There's nothing like that really in natural medicine, especially Ayurveda and especially aromatherapy. This is all a field where you have to be self-motivated, self-actualized. And so that's how I have lived my life completely with very little help. And as part of that, there is also the capacity to reinvent yourself, which is absolutely necessary. So at a certain point, I had to reinvent myself from a clinician to a businessman. And of course, I had already put a lot of years into becoming a clinician, and I had no idea how many years I would have to put in before the business would actually allow me to go off and do other things. So there's a diversity. And I think that that's probably the best answer I could give you if there's anything secret or super or whatever. It's that I have a diversity of interests and I have pursued them for a long time in a dedicated way. And all of these things are now coming to fruition. That's in a way that's very satisfying business, medicine, ecology, spirituality. But in order to have that diversity, there had to be a lot of journeys and a lot of studies and a lot of reinventing myself and so forth. And so I would say maybe that's different in some ways. What about, this This came to me during our discussion. Um, we are in, in the middle of kind of an opioid epidemic and it, it, it comes from the overprescription of pain drugs when people come in that, to have surgery or people come in with, with injury. Have you seen an alternative in the botanical realms that you run with that, 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 that presents a glimmer of hope? Yes, absolutely. The, one of the most promising solutions is the clinical use of ibogaine. Ibogaine is an alkaloid that is extracted from a plant called iboga that comes from West Africa where it is used in the Bwiti religion. It is a psychoactive plant that produces a very deep, transformative, sustained, long journey. It's in the same category as other entheogens such as ayahuasca or psilocybin and these entheogenic plants are now getting a lot of modern confirmation psilocybin just came out in the bbc last week one dose can help reset people's brains who have chronic intractable depression this is a big subject that in order to actually break out of a lot of extremely limited neurological conditions we need to be touched by the spirit basically we need very strong plants and we need a strong spiritual experience so Iboga in West Africa is used as an initiatory entheogen, 
and it produces very intriguing experience. And the drug itself, the alkaloid, is now available in clinics in Mexico specifically for breaking opioid addiction. High rate of success. The way it works is first that there's a period of about five or six hours where you have a kind of uh, hallucinogenic experience if your eyes are closed. In other words, it starts to generate internal imagery. Then the person goes into a long stretch of 10 or 20 hours where they appear to be sleeping, but they are actually in a waking trance state and they are doing a life review. And they're going back and they are seeing their life very vividly and they are bringing back memories that have been lost and they are beginning to understand why their life went in a particular way and what were some of the early influences and uh, the kinds of things that shaped their personality, things that they had blocked and so forth. And the unique characteristic of this life review is that it is in a state of complete detachment and equanimity. So the drug itself is called a dissociative hallucinogen. It brings vivid internal activity especially through the memory banks. It's like a journey through the memory banks, but it's dissociative in nature. Now, that's the key to purifying the subconscious. And that's a key that's taught in Vipassana practice also, mindfulness and equanimity. So the drug induces high level of mindfulness, but it also induces a high level of equanimity. In other words, you're seeing yourself and all the horrible traumatic things, but you're not getting all the emotional charge about it. And that's how the charge is dissipated. And we can do that in yoga nidra, we can do that in hypnosis, we can do it in meditation, but this does it in a very concentrated, immediate form. And the end result is that when people get through the introspective phase, they go into a rest phase. And then when the whole thing is over, they discover they have lost their interest in opioids. The hypothesis to explain this is that the addictive cravings are linked to the subconscious pain. Now, I don't think that's the entire case because many people are not on opioids because of subconscious pain. It started with physical pain and it started with a prescription drug and then they got addicted. But there is some link between purifying the memory banks and breaking the addiction to opiates. And this clinical application of this alkaloid is being used for numerous types of addictive problems, as well as spiritual inquiry to be able to do a life review, which can be done with other entheogens as well. This happens with ayahuasca and psilocybin, peyote, and all these things. It can happen to some degree with cannabis. It can definitely happen just with meditation. But it happens in a very accelerated way, and it also resets the brain chemistry. And the end result is that opioids especially are treated. And this is why I mention it. Now, I don't have experience with that. I have experience with some entheogens way back in my past in a traditional cultural ritualistic setting. And a lot of the psychoactive principles and results are the same. So I can talk about it, but what I'm 
mentioning is based on modern research, not having done it myself, but I just like to bring to people's attention that there are now numerous clinics in Mexico and the Caribbean and Central America, Costa Rica, where the this medication is being administered and when done correctly, apparently the end result is people just walk out and they don't feel any craving for opioids anymore. But I will give a word of caution that there are some people who are also taking advantage of this as far as unscrupulous shamans. Same problem that we have with ayahuasca. So if you are looking at doing this type of spiritual process or medical process, you need to do the research. And in this case with the Ibogaine, go to a place that's highly professional with medical staff. Don't just go to some place on the beach that some guy is giving you a capsule and saying, that's it. You should do it with trained professionals. If you could prescribe one plant essence for the current administration in the White House, what would it be? Probably an entheogen. (laughs) (laughs) I would suggest an ayahuasca enema. They need something radical. Unfortunately, it would probably destroy their personality structure. Or fortunately. Seriously, I don't think that there's any herbal medicine that really addresses the pathology at that level. So just to sum up, let's say the listener, let's say there's a listener out there who's really inspired by this interview with you. They'd love to get uh, kind of started on a road to botanical understanding what what's the the step that they could take to to get them off the ground well the internet is probably the first place to start and gardens would be another place to start esalen is another place to start so obviously if they're listening to this podcast they're connected to esalen which means that they already have access to the courses and the teachers and the facilities and know about this. But if they're specifically interested in herbal medicine for themselves for treatment, then you would like to find a practitioner. And that's what the internet is good for. My suggestion is that you could go to the website of the American Herbal Guild and they have a directory of qualified herbalists all over the country. That's one source. Another source is that you can look for naturopathic doctors who are also trained in herbal medicine and also are licensed to prescribe allopathic medications. So if you have an illness where you are on medications and you want to transition to natural medicine, you should work with a naturopath because they can adjust your medications while at the same time helping you to transition with nutrition and herbs and other therapies. You could find directories of a similar nature. One place comes to mind, Bastyr University, uh, which is in Seattle. And Bastyr has a directory of its graduates around the country. Those are very important resources to find practitioners to work with. Now, a lot of people 
enter into the world of herbal medicine after they become well from natural medicine. A particular therapy really helped them. They were dramatically cured by acupuncturists. They become uh, dramatically cured by acupuncture. They become an acupuncturist. They were dramatically cured by herbs. They become an herbalist. That transformative effect motivates them to learn more and to share it with others. There are a lot of herbal schools around also, and you can find a separate directory there on the website of the American Herbal Guild of numerous herb schools in the country. Most of them at this point are a combination of online education and in-person classes where you would do majority of time webcasts and this kind of thing, but then you would maybe go uh, one weekend out of every month or something. So there's a lot of educational resources available. And this is totally different than it was when I started out. When I started out, there was nothing, literally nothing at all. And if we look at how many resources are now available and how many people are taking advantage of those resources and how many people are being affected by it, we can see the transformative power of natural medicine at work in our society. It's a totally different social orientation to natural medicine now than it was even 10 years ago. It's a very rapid transformation. Those are a few of the resources that come to mind right offhand. And then, of course, our website and, of course, our educational programs that we have, which are both aromatherapy and herbal. That's another source. David Crow, thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's podcast was produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. To hear more episodes, search for us on iTunes, and please hit subscribe, or go to the Esalen website. That's E-S-A-L-E-N dot org. All of our podcasts are archived there. Until next time, be well. <laughs>